Hi, Janina. Hi, Emma. Welcome to episode three of History is Sexy. Um, you were sounding particularly sexy today. I was sounding particularly sexy today because I am full of snot. Uh, <laughs> it's wonderful what a lurgy will do for the voice. It is. Um, yeah, it's like podcast or phone sex work for me, so it's a good thing that I went into podcast. <laughs> it's nice to have those options. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what are we talking about today, Janina? What's our sexy history talk? Um, so we are answering the question put to us by Tim Nolan. Before Scott and Charlene tied the knot in 1987, did anyone marry for love? And have you found out what Scott and Charlene is yet? Yeah, I had Who to Google it, which made me feel like a bad <laughs> antipodean. You're a bad antipodean and also a bad 80s child, really. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so Scott and Charlene, it was Scott Robinson and Charlene, I can't remember her surname. Well, eventually Robinson. Eventually Robinson as well. But they got married on Neighbours and it was the cultural event of 1987. Wow. Possibly the cultural event of the 80s. Um, <laughs> I looked this up and it was the highest watched episode in Australia ever. And 19.6 million people watched it in the UK. Well, it's like a third of the population of the UK. Charlene is Kylie Minogue, am I right? That is correct. And Scott is Jason Donovan. Right, Jason Donovan. I used to have the cassette recording of his starring turn in Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Nice. My eighth birthday present was going to see him in Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. <laughs> and it was probably the highlight of my life <laughs> until I got to see Bon Jovi when I was about 28. <laughs> Both of those things are amazing. Yes, and he was great. But in, in 1987, he had a kind of straightened blonde mullet. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. Kylie had a kind of shoulder length perm. Beautiful. And they did Especially For You together um, because they were also both massive pop stars. Especially for you. I wanna let you and it was... I think probably the invention of love for a lot of people of our generation. Not for you, apparently. Apparently uh, not. <laughs> but certainly I had a big crush on Jason Donovan. Fear. And I mean, the hair alone. The or... hair alone. I tell you, give a man a mullet and a guitar. <laughs> and what 80s girl can say no? <laughs> but unfortunately, I think all generations think that they have invented love and that nobody has ever felt the way that they did before. Well, I think that's probably because the first time you feel anything like romantic love is when you're a teenager and you think you're the centre of the universe. That is true. And then your teen parents are telling you that it's ridiculous, so you assume that they must never have felt anything before. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So technically, the answer to Tim's question is yes. And now <laughs> we're going to talk about it for about an hour. Hurrah! <laughs> That's the perfect amount of time to talk about marriage. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's enough, I think. But we have a couple of disclaimers that I, as a cultural historian, want to get in first. First of which is that pretty much anything up until kind of early modern times, we are mostly going to be talking about aristocratic people. Is that simply because there's so much more in terms of records of Yeah, it's because no, nobody oddly was writing like memoirs of a peasant in 
you know, 840 AD. So history is inherently classist, is what we're saying. History is inherently classist. And this gives us this weird skewed perspective whereby we think that the behaviours, or we treat the behaviours of the upper classes as being normal in the Mm -hmm. past and kind of don't acknowledge that the upper classes today still act in weird ways. So I don't know how many massively upper class people that you have met, but I went to university with a couple of people who were like, oh, yeah, yeah, our father is 57th in line the throne and god bless them they were all delightful but they also had kind of rules for living and for life that did not apply to the rest of us like sure you could only marry somebody else who is in line to the throne or you definitely can't be marrying people who don't have property (laughs) technically aren't we all in line to the throne just a huge amount of people would have to die i'm gonna break it to you i don't think either of us are oh well See, this this stuff always kind of wigs me out a bit because New Zealand doesn't really have a classes as mm. such. Like, there is definitely, like, a blue-collar working class and then, you know, white-collar thing. And there's there are very rich people, so I guess you could say there's a wealthy class, but it's not at all in the same way that, like, yeah. social classes happen here. And it's still something that, even after how, however many years I've been living here, I can't quite get my head around in terms of how it relates to modern life. Like, I understand how it works in your Tudor England, but that's basically <laughs> a fairy tale land, so it doesn't really seem like it should still apply. That's fair. I mean, being like aristocratic rich in that you're ancient rich and you can trace your family line back to William the Conqueror and your 17 times great uncle is Ethelred the Unready is (laughs) a weird thing. And it, it, it almost doesn't relate to modern life because there's so few of them and they have just such completely different concerns from the rest of us. We're actually, I think, in a really interesting period now where it's only three years ago now that the succession laws for the monarchy were not repealed but modified, which meant that the Queen no longer had to personally approve every single marriage of every single descendant of, I think it's George III. And that's a lot of descendants. <laughs> That is a lot of descendants. And so, but she had to personally approve every single marriage and they had to adhere to certain rules, like not allowed to marry a Catholic and that kind of thing, in order to be legal. And that was only just repealed very recently uh, in 2015. And it's because of that repeal that we're getting these changes that we're seeing with William and Harry, whereby they are allowed to marry a divorced person um, and they're Mm -hmm. allowed to marry an American and they're allowed to marry somebody who is not, you know, neither Kate nor Meghan are members of the traditional aristocracy. And previously, yeah. those weddings would not really be allowed under the, the rules. And that's, you know, why we had Edward, whoever it is, who had to abdicate to marry Wallace Simpson, because that, that sure. laws were not allowed. And that was a massive constitutional crisis for the UK. So there you go. There's somebody who married for love for a starter. Yeah. And that was yeah. a, that, but, that, but that was a crisis for the aristocracy or the royals anyway, in that he wanted to marry for love rather than marrying for the country essentially. And that kind of post-Victorian early 20th century period whereby the idea of marrying for love and the idea of love being something that is both undeniable and intrinsic and a driver of behaviour kind of started to become something that changed the country, even though it's quite new. Yeah, so I've been, I did some reading uh, of biology or the the neurology, I guess, of love. Okay. From a book called A General Theory of Love. 
which is a really, really interesting book. I like literally thought about rereading this and, and checking up on it an hour ago, so I haven't done a massive <laughs> amount of research around it. I just went back and reread some of the parts I remembered. But basically, it looks at where in the brain love is housed and why we have those feelings around it and why we feel loyalty towards people and that sort of thing. And why animals behave differently in this respect as well. Why some animals are loyal and monogamous and some are not. And it's super interesting. And basically what it claims is that the human brain and well the all brains really can be broken down into three different sections really like physical sections that developed at different stages in our evolutionary past Mm-hmm. So there is starting with the reptilian brain, which is basically where all of the sort of instincts that are necessary for us to stay alive are housed. So everything from breathing to being startled at a loud noise or something. Mm-hmm. And then there's the limbic brain, which is where we feel connections. That's something that was developed in mammals as mammals evolved, which is why, you know, a cat will look after its young after they're born rather than just laying eggs and walking away the way that lizards and snakes do. Mm -hmm. And then the third part is the neocortal brain, which is different sizes in different mammals, but in humans is massive and full of different folds, and that's where we have analytical thought. So they claim claim basically that our feelings, our emotional connections are in the limbic brain and our analytical ones are in the neocortal one, which is why we can never really control our feelings super well. We can mitigate them, but we can't, like, overrule them because they're happening in different places that evolved at different stages and I don't know I don't know how well founded the science is <laughs> I just thought that's really really interesting and the uh, the different behaviours can also be attributed to the amounts of different chemicals in our brain so they looked at the difference between prairie voles and mountain voles who are identical in most respects but prairie voles are monogamous and mountain voles are not and prairie voles also nurture the young for a lot longer and it's to do with the only difference they could find was the a much higher level of oxytocin the stuff that americans are all addicted to yeah <laughs> which is <laughs> i think it's, it's i mean super, fair super enough it sounds great <laughs> it also like from some of the historical readings and stuff we were looking at it kind of makes sense that there are all of these rules about how relationships should work in an ordered society and how those rules sometimes deliberately ignore emotional attachment because it's not mm. logical and it's sometimes seen as being a perversion when it's like against normal social orders because it comes from this different place which i thought was Yeah, or dangerous to social order in some way. Yeah. Because social order is, in a lot of societies, and particularly in collectivist societies, this is something I'm going to talk about more, which is the idea of individualist versus collectivist societies, which is a very broad Mm -hmm. uh, brush to paint, but it's a very useful analytical framework, which is the idea that within a collectivist society, the social order is more important than you as an individual, and your role in life is to maintain the family maintain the community maintain your state and it Mm -hmm. is to fulfill a duty essentially you're not just a person by yourself at any point you are always one of a series in a string or within a group which are all linked together by duty and by love and by obligation Mm -hmm. but to an individualist society which we live in and we live in an extraordinarily individualist society whereby (laughs) we exist as individuals and our individual happiness and fulfillment is the primary goal of life 
which to us, the idea of being bound to other people by obligation sounds kind of suffocating and terrifying. And to people mm-hmm. who live in collectivist societies, the idea of being out on your own and looking out only for yourself and your personal freedom and happiness sounds terrifyingly lonely and horrible (laughs) (laughs) and frightening. And it is difficult, therefore, for us as modern Western people who live in this profoundly individualist society to Mm -hmm. understand how people lived in kind of the pre-modern, pre-enlightenment world and didn't feel horribly suffocated by everything. Yeah. I've been doing all of this research while watching The New Queer Eye, which is obviously brilliant. (laughs) But the thing that they say, and they say about four times an episode, is you have to be living your authentic self. We just really want you to live your authentic self. And this is, we're branding you so it feels just like you and so your home feels like it has your personality on it. And and they're like (laughs) so strong about living your authentic self and I've just been I mean this is all this is all kind of like sort of Nietzschean and that that idea of like personal self-actualization rather than yeah collective yeah that's only part of it the idea of of having a a a self that you then is more important than the whole Mm. and yeah and so they're all like you know live your authentic self be this person that is more that's the most important thing and in order to have the kind of marriage that we have in our society whereby you are marrying somebody because you love them and you want to spend the rest of your life with them at this Mm -hmm. moment in time that is what you want to do you have to have this idea of like I am a unique being, you are a unique being, and together we are going to fulfill one another's needs <laughs> for as long as that is going to last. And that is such a new, like new in a global sense, it's like maybe only like 200 years old, 150 <laughs> years old as an idea. And it is kind of reaching this pinnacle now whereby it is the the purpose of marriage is to love each other's unique selves Mm -hmm. and that's such a weird thing in the history of marriage yeah and I guess like because because it's new it's not something we always do very well in that we are and where I think we are taught a lot to to view it as the number one primary source of your uh, happiness and self-worth and all of this stuff which is obviously completely implausible Yeah, there's an extreme tension, I think, in what marriage is today, which is that between that idea of love is a source of your soul happiness or can it's supposed to be a source of all of your needs are fulfilled by this one person and between what is the ling I say lingering but it's still a dominant Christian idea of marriage as a kind of sacrament as something between two people that and that divorce is failure and or that divorce is somehow shameful I know it's less so these days in that you're not going to get kicked out of your community for getting divorced but there is a, a still a shame around the idea oh yeah completely because you fail to do that so there is this kind of interesting tension this is probably the bit which I should come clean and say that my PhD was on the uh, early Christian idea of marriage Mm -hmm. and (laughs) about how things like the notion of marriage as a sacrament blessed by God in which two souls become one emerged and then affected people's lives so (laughs) this is the kind of thing like cultural ideas of marriage is stuff that I love (laughs) and I think that the the modern cultural idea of marriage is really interesting and probably more varied, I think, than it's ever been. Because we, there's three of us who do this podcast. So there's me, I'm not married, Janina. Janina's not married, but we're both in long-term cohabiting monogamous relationships. Yeah, which is, I mean, 
still kind of considered common law marriage, I guess, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I probably will get married. Ginny and I don't. I Are probably you, won't. You probably won't. But um, our other person who is our silent partner is Oliver, who is also in a long-term relationship and is getting married. And so I think just between the three of us with very reasonably similar backgrounds, reasonably similar approaches to life, we all clearly have these different ideas of yeah, well, what we, where we want marriage to be in our lives. Well, I think, I don't know, for me, it's something that's changed a lot. Yeah. In, like, even in the last... 10 years because I grew up in quite a religious family and I always thought that marriage was not the goal but one of the biggest goals and for life and that I would probably you know fall in love and get married when I was like 23 because that's what young Christian (laughs) girls do yeah um and that that would be it and I that's that's how it worked and I didn't I didn't believe in having sex before marriage and I I didn't believe in all the stuff about it. I didn't believe in getting divorced. And then I grew up and was like, oh, this doesn't really track for me anymore. So now I'm, yeah, living with a partner who I probably will never marry and that's fine. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that's because we live in this profoundly individualist society. Yeah. Which is great, especially for us as women, because that is not an option that we would have had previously. Yeah. Even though I'm always fighting against the idea that the world before now was come kind of total, like all women were miserable. <laughs> and one of the, I mean, the things that I worked with in my PhD a lot was the second wave feminist idea that the introduction of Christianity and the possibility of living as a consecrated virgin for early Christian women, what we would now call nuns, offered a freedom for women because it allowed them mm-hmm. to not marry. And the idea of marriage as a patriarchal trap being some kind of universal constant, as if we've all grown up in the same world essentially and marriage is certainly a patriarchal institution in the same way that everything is a patriarchal institution but that does not make it a patriarchal trap sure that just because it's patriarchal doesn't mean that women do not aspire to it my sister is getting married this summer and she would definitely describe herself as a feminist but she's having a big white wedding and uh, a big and she can't wait. She's having the, I say she's having time of her life. She's whinging about it constantly, but she's going to have <laughs> a giant dress that you could like hide 15 people inside of. See, this is, this is one of the things I think about modern weddings is that, and again, we're obviously, this is really exclusively related to the upper classes, but in the past, women got to go to balls wearing big fancy poofy dresses <laughs> all the time. Now we get to do it once in our entire lives. So why wouldn't you go all out? It's true. Although, do you want to know a good fact about... Uh, I say, do you want to know? We're literally on a history podcast. <laughs> a good fact about wedding dress, about big white wedding dresses, is that um, the idea of having a big fancy dress is very new. Mm, and particularly a white dress. Yeah, it's a 20th century invention. And having a big a white dress used to be a sign of wealth because it meant that you, like, you had a white dress that was you weren't going to get dirty by traipsing through mud. My favourite um, old fact about the dresses was that... Uh, bridesmaids were supposed to dress in the same to look like the bride so that if the devil tried to kidnap the bride there was there were a group of decoys that's a good one that's a good one i like it's always nice to be protected from the devil (laughs) but if when i get married i'm gonna make you be a bridesmaid you're gonna have to dress just like me (laughs) fair enough i will i will (laughs) sacrifice myself to the devil for you and your happy marriage thanks janina But the idea of it as a, because now we see it as a symbol of purity. Um, and I've certainly seen people say, oh, I'm not getting married. It's my second. Like, she, as a, you shouldn't wear white as a second wedding because everyone knows you're not a virgin. The, the, the white is this idea of, 
of, of virginity, of of, pure, of kind of purity of body for women. But it actually came from um, Queen Victoria. <laughs> she wore a white dress that really popularised the idea of wearing white dresses and took it from being just an aristocracy thing into being a a more common thing because anything the Queen Victoria did, everybody did. And then it was kind of retroactively applied to it, this Victorian (laughs) notion of purity um, that has now become part of our cultural conversation about weddings that and that we now place onto women of there is an expectation of virginity before marriage. Mm -hmm. Or at least not necessarily of saving yourself, but that a woman should not be promiscuous in some nebulously defined idea of promiscuous. But it is entirely new. But the idea of a woman needing to be pure, apart from the, sort of the social idea that women are responsible for the sexual purity of their entire communities, which yeah. arises in a lot of different places, but it's, my understanding there is also that it's partly because of a male fear of uh, unwittingly willing their estates to children that weren't their own and wanting to be sure that their wives weren't going to carry some other man's children for them. Yeah. Um, So like a woman who has been promiscuous, you can't trust the idea that you can't then trust her to be monogamous. Monogamous, yeah. And that is an eternal crisis for men. It must be very difficult that you just never know when a woman's having sex with someone else. Yeah. And you can go back, you know, as far as you want. There's an Athenian comedy called The Lysistrata, which is where women go on sex strike. Yeah, which was remade by uh, Spike Lee as She-Rock. Yes. Yeah, it's really good. But the, the part of the joke in the... The ancient Athenian one is that women were so horny all the time that they found it really hard and just started like <laughs> feeling up any old man who came near them right? because <laughs> it, it was so challenging for them not to have sex. And there's all of this good stuff. There's a really good story in um, Apuleius's The Golden Ass, which is one of the filthiest things I've ever read. It's a Roman era Greek novel um, about a guy who gets turned into a donkey. And it's got a donkey woman sex show in the middle of it. But it also has these story, seven stories of adultery. And one of them has a woman who is having an affair with a guy and her husband comes home in the middle and she goes, ah, um, and then... She hides her lover and then gets, basically is like, look look at this giant pot that I have bought. Isn't it so <laughs> massive? And she persuades her husband to get into this giant pot. And then while he's inside having a look going, gosh, yes, it is very large. Her lover comes up behind her and starts having sex with her while she's looking into the pot talking to her husband. <laughs> And there's just so many stories like that from whereby the idea is that women are so insatiable that they just need sex constantly or else they'll die and therefore you shouldn't let them out of the house. <laughs> and that's why you have to keep an eye on them constantly because they can't be trusted. They yeah. just need it so badly, which isn't the, like the whole cultural history of sex is a, a world of fun. But then that later under in kind of more Christian concepts becomes actually women hate sex and women don't want sex and women have to be persuaded to have yeah. sex and it's men who are insatiable and who need it all the time. Yeah, it's taken a long time for us to maybe conf- confront the idea that maybe there's little to no difference in how much <laughs> women and men want sex. <laughs> I mean, yeah, as a, once again, we've come now come to the point where we're like, well, maybe it's individual. <laughs> as you know, I am a, an avid reader of the Reddit Our Relationships Forum, 
which <laughs> is a fabulous insight into primarily American, young American relationships. Their ideas of love and marriage and relationships are endlessly fascinating to me. And a lot of the time it is, there are questions of like, why doesn't my boyfriend want to have sex with me all the time? Or women being like, why does my boyfriend look at pornography? Why aren't I enough for him? Because of this idea that if he needs to look at pornography, then he must not be getting his sexual needs fulfilled inside this relationship. Therefore, the relationship must Mm -hmm. be failing in some way. Obviously, I'm a Roman historian and... I just think that if you showed the Romans this, they would just laugh and laugh and laugh (laughs) so hard because the idea that one person can fulfill everything that you need. Yeah. Or the idea that one person should fulfill anything that you need is would be so bizarre to them. Like, that's not what a marriage is. It's just a contract. It's just (laughs) a, like, obviously people did fall in love in marriages and people do fall in love in arranged marriages, which again, to a Western ear, makes, like, arranged marriage sounds horrifying. But that's effectively what marriage was for a very, very long time. It was something that was decided with the person who was getting married and the entire families (laughs) and everybody just had a chat about it. And when I need you to marry this person or that you're going to marry this person and you would get married and that would be it and you would give them children but that didn't necessarily mean that you had to only have sex with them or that anyone was expected to even talk to each other that much if they didn't want to (laughs) i feel like i should do a quick overview of very broadly how marriage has changed in the west over the past couple of millennia Mm -hmm. i suppose how we get to this point here so in the ancient western world marriage particularly in rome marriage is sort of completely unrelated to emotions it's um not religious it's not spiritual in any way it is just a contract between people we know a lot mostly about marriage again from the aristocracy because um the aristocracy like to marry each other off to one another as a way of forming alliances between families So there is a a level of emotion there in that you're expected to not hurt a member of your family. Like once they're a member of a family, you have an obligation to them. And so you're expected to like them in some way. Mm -hmm. So you have like the classic is Julius Caesar marrying his daughter to Pompey. So is a way of showing that he and Pompey were no longer going to be at war. Pompey is a representative of how much people thought that love was quite amusing. Like the idea of love in marriage was quite funny because Pompey is made fun of a lot for being really in love with Julia and Mm -hmm. he would kind of follow her around and really liked her and was really nice to her and everyone was like you absolute loser that's not what (laughs) wives are for um everyone just took the piss out of him like that you know that's not (laughs) what aristocratic men do with their wives you have a concubine for that and that is essentially what concubinage is for um and it's not brilliantly well studied outside of academia because we What we want to do when we look at the ancient world or the world before ours is look at things that we recognise, basically. So we just look at marriages. But people had concubines all over the place. (laughs) And again, Vespasian is the classic one. He had this concubine who was an ex-slave who he could never marry because he wasn't allowed to marry her. But they were together and in love for decades. And she lived with him and she, you know, was his partner in as much as we would recognise partnership. Mm -hmm. And they were in love, but it wasn't a marriage. So there are no statues to her or anything. But essentially marriage is a kind of legal relationship. Yeah. And then Christianity comes along. This is where my expertise comes in. And changed it all completely. And made marriage a divine thing. Mm -hmm. And made it so that marriage was something instituted by God 
in order to make sex okay, basically. (laughs) (laughs) And the logic goes broadly, sex is terrible, sex is essentially going to send you to hell, sex destroys your soul, you should never have sex, never have sex. Christ is coming back any minute now, so never, everyone should stop having sex immediately. Mm-hmm. 200 years passed. Everyone's agreed that sex is bad, but Christ still hasn't come back. So now we have to start working out theology of how we allow people to have children. Uh, <laughs> essentially. So everyone has to sort of scrabble about a bit. And it takes about 200 years for anyone to work out a decent theology of marriage. Um, and eventually Augustine comes up with marriage combines two souls into one. So it is okay to have sex within marriage because that is overseen by God and God has given us the institution of marriage in order to make sex within marriage less sinful, basically. Mm-hmm. You can only have, mar- mar- have sex, marital sex on certain days and if you enjoy it, you're doing it wrong. But it is okay within that. And then once you have this idea that love is a sacrament that joins two souls together, then you have to start saying, maybe we should stop just divorcing each other willy-nilly. Maybe (laughs) we can't, now that we're a Christian and we've got married and we've said that it's the linking of two souls, oh, I guess we can't just split up because I fell out with your dad and then just marry someone else. Or a really big problem was, so say, Janina, that you have a brother. You have very handsome brothers. Say, I was married by my father to your very handsome brother. Mm -hmm. And then before we could have any children, your very handsome brother passed away very sadly. Mm -hmm. I, however, my dad and your dad still want to have a connection to one another. So they just marry me to another brother. Right. The next brother in line. Which is which is what we get with Catherine of Aragon. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Um, so very common. But in early Christian societies, became seen as not good. Not okay. <laughs> because mm-hmm. once you have said, oh, we're joined by marriage, then I would become your sister. And then me marrying your other brother would be incest. Right. Which is quite fun. Then that gets massively out of control, but that's a different situation. But then <laughs> you start to get things like, you can't get divorced and limits on who you're allowed to marry. Because if I don't have a brother, but if I had a brother and you married my brother, then can I marry your sis- your brother? Because then we're sisters again. And all of these problems that start to disrupt what were traditional aristocratic patterns of marriage, basically. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, and so marriage then becomes godly. It becomes divine. It becomes something which is beautiful. It's always secondary to virginity, but it is something nice. And then you're stuck with somebody forever, basically. So then you start to get talk much later on, obviously, about actually being in love with the person. (laughs) Although I want to say, like, in my PhD, I've got a load of love poems that were written about marriages that were written about, like, oh, this prince has fallen in love with this princess and they have such a burning passion for one another. So it's not like people didn't talk. There was an idealised form of love. It's just that it was something that developed rather than something that happened first and then you got married because of it essentially then you have two big changes that all just basically continues along happily for a while Mm -hmm. until you get protestantism which it completely fucks everything up (laughs) in the 16th century because it basically says actually being married is the same and is as good as being chaste and being a nun or a monk and completely brings in a whole new theology of marriage. And then it also says that it's not just something that is a church thing, it's something that should be overseen by the government, which it previously was not. There was no, like, centralised database of marriages in medieval England. (laughs) 
like there is now. Like, you did not have to go down and fill in a form and say, I want to marry Connor, da 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 Just everybody agreed that you weren't married to somebody else, basically. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that marriage was something that the government should deal with was quite radically new. And the idea that being married was godly in a, the same way was something quite radically new. And then they also fucked everything up by saying that faith alone is enough to get you into heaven um, and that basically made everybody fall over because it said that the church was irrelevant and everybody freaked out and it got really fun. But then you also have... <laughs> that's broadly irrelevant, but it's also quite fun. And then you have the Enlightenment, which happens as Protestantism after Martin Luther is working itself out in the 16th century. Then in the 17th century, so late 16th, early 17th century, you start having the Enlightenment and the, these people in dealing with the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and start talking about individualism and critiquing government and talking about the personal relationship with God and what is my personal relationship with God and what is reason and how do I as a person I think therefore I am da 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 and people start talking about themselves mm-hmm. and so you have these two coordinating movements one whereby somebody says you don't need to go through the church to have a relationship with God your relation your faith is enough and the other as kind of philosophical movement saying but what am I and those two movements are the two things that come together towards where we are now basically whereby they start to disrupt marriage where people start going maybe I should be happy in marriage what is happiness (laughs) what is my marriage and it takes it away from the church and makes it less of a religious thing Mm -hmm. which means that divorces can come back in again much more easily and it takes it away from the idea of people being invested primarily in a community and becoming more... Obviously, it takes hundreds of years to... It's not like one day somebody woke up and was like, you know what, I think I should get married because I'm happy. (laughs) But, yeah, it takes it away from the idea that we should be living for a community and more starts the movement towards I as an individual should be living for my own personal authentic self. Right. And gradually that is how we get to where we are today, whereby I marry because of my choice without my parents being involved, without anybody else being involved, whereby I can go down to City Hall tomorrow, fill in a form, pay 150 quid and technically be married. (laughs) Which is completely unique in a way. Yeah. And is exclusively Western, really. I have this theory that is born out of little more than consuming entertainment about about kind of what patriarchal societies did to fuck up relation or the maybe i mean obviously there was no concept of of marriage existing in the state as we know it today back in these times but i have this thing about why the rules that we established for marriage and then the mitigating factors that we put in place to help us deal with our marriages or the mm-hmm. lacks that we found within them which is basically born out of this film called dangerous beauty <laughs> oh yeah yeah <laughs> Which is uh, based on the true story of one of uh, Venice's most famous courtesans uh-huh. from from olden times before Venice was part of Italy when it was just Venice. Yeah. We're basically, it definitely ha- touches on pretty accurate stuff. I don't know how much it's stretched. The basic premise at the very beginning of the film is that women, especially women um, of noble birth, weren't as educated as men. They weren't, like, women weren't allowed in the library. Mm. 
the, uh, the only women who were allowed there were courtesans and that became like they sort of higher up court there were courtesans there were sort of street courtesans as yeah. well but then there was this upper class where they were incredibly highly educated and one of the literally one of the services they provided was to have these elaborate drawn out battles of wits yeah with with men because that was literally how they operated and it has always kind of reminded me also of the fact that you know in ancient Greece you get again women who aren't permitted to be educated and then men having these very profound relationships with other men and I think there's even a quote in uh, one of the books that we were reading to prepare that talks about how love for a woman is less revered than love for a man because that's your there's equality there where it can't be yeah. So I, I've always had this theory that basically these patriarchal societies that prevented women from being the intellectual equal of the men that were around them prevented the men from having satisfying relationships because I think that we are fundamentally built to desire intellectual connection that goes hand in hand with physical intimacy. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that we've only been able to have relatively recently because of the way that society was structured and the different roles that were given to men and women. I think that is only relatively recently something that you have been able to aspire to within a marriage. Yeah. Whereas in pre-modern, in the pre-modern world, you might you would be able to aspire to it within a friendship or within mm-hmm. you you could have a, a loving relationship with somebody who wasn't your wife necessarily or who wasn't your husband. You could have a, a very loving and potentially for men physical relationship. Although I do have. Mm-hmm this theory that is completely unprovable because there's no evidence for it whatsoever that there must have been so much gay sex happening between women oh completely (laughs) because particularly in the roman world for example uh, certain types of women were excluded from adultery laws and stuff so if you worked in a tavern or you're an actress then you were all considered to be impure already so you didn't matter <laughs> but for aristocratic women like they were so protected and some of them were so um, kind of closed off from male spaces and in ancient Greece there you know you just there were male spaces in the house and female spaces in the house and neither mm-hmm. the twain did meet so they just must have been banging all the time <laughs> actually there's I mean I I hope they were because yeah one of the reasons so Tim who asked this question recommended me a book which I love so much I just recommend it to everybody which is Hilled by Nicola Griffith Mm -hmm. which is about a woman in 7th century England as who is a kind of princess within an early medieval court and one of the things that I just loved about that book was that she has a slave who is her personal slave recognizes when she hits puberty essentially and so because she doesn't want her falling in love with a man and then being sad about it so she fucks her so that she doesn't go looking for stable boys to fuck basically (laughs) (laughs) and I just love that about that because there must have been so many women having sex with one another and having just profound relationships because they had no real men yeah it's one of the many reasons why I love the book um, that's going to be my book recommendation of the week, which is Hilled. But yeah, I just genuinely thought that that was such a, an, an insightful thing to have within a historical novel that's so rare, which considers the fact that as a princess, she has obligations um, and her marriage will not be a love marriage. And mm-hmm. that, but that love exists and that is there is potential for her to fall in love with a man that she will then be forcibly separated from and she can't read or write. So they won't be able to write letters to each other or anything. And and so it protects her from that. Yeah. And so I just, the nuance of that relationship is just so smart. And I think so realistic in how experiences must have been to so many women in history who must have all just been banging each other. 
not for titillation. I really, really (laughs) hope they were. (laughs) Yeah. And this is another thing, and this is something that, you know, has to come up as well, which is the idea of equal marriage and the the idea now that that we can marry each other if we wanted to, which is nice. Not here, Mm. because it's not legal in Northern Ireland, but we totally could in England. (laughs) Um, In England... Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, and that, you know, that we would have the equal right to marry, which within an individualist society is fantastic. And in a society where we want to be able to embrace ourselves and have a relationship that is, and have marriage be relationship is fulfilling mm. on a personal level, obviously everyone should be able to marry. The idea of a sexual, having a sexuality is spectacularly modern, like a hundred years old modern. <laughs> So if our theories are right and 500 years ago women who were expected to marry for duty and family and alliances and if if we're right in that they were secretly boning each other all the time yeah that wouldn't have been anything to do with their identity as people it would just have been a thing they did and this is totally a cultural thing because i would i would lean towards believing that there probably have always been people who only were sexually attracted to men and who were only sexually (laughs) attracted to women but there weren't the labels for it but there was exactly there wasn't the language for it there wasn't the cultural framework in which you could talk about that it's really quite new to be able to say i fancy women and that is a part of my identity because right and therefore i am going to marry women it was more of a behavior like oh i have sex with men and women or oh i I primarily have sex with women for fun but uh, then i have to kind of endure the boning of my husband for the babies (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and the same for men like there's a good few rulers and kings and queens and everyone's like "Mm," they had a lot of male friends who they claimed that they openly said they were in love with but they also had seven children Right. And like, because it's a behavior, it's not like being married is not part of your identity. It's just a behavior. And having sex with men isn't part of your identity. It's just a behavior. They're not part of the conversation of how ancient medieval people defined themselves. There were other things that they used to say, I am Edward and I am the descendant of blah, blah, blah. And I am, this is what I do. Yeah. This is one of the things that comes up, I think, a lot on um, uh, on sort of the young liberal internet. On like, the Tumblr. On, on, t- on the Tumblr. <laughs> it does come up and it pisses um, me off every time. <laughs> well, yeah, but there's this, there's this obvious and it's, I think, natural tension that comes up between historians and, and t- Tumblr rus, where, like, for example, one that comes, I see come up again and again is James I and George Villiers. Yeah. Villiers, where uh, James I wrote about him in this passionate, romantic way. He referred to him as his husband. He had a tunnel yeah. to his room yeah. built. And there's this frustration when people see historians talk about, we can't really know what their relationship was like. They were obviously very good friends. And Tumblr basically is screaming, but they fucking... <laughs> Like, yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, fucking. oh my god, they were one hundred percent fucking. <laughs> but 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 that doesn't that mean is... that we can say that they were gay because they wouldn't have understood that yeah. terminology themselves. And they and they wouldn't necessarily have understood that terminology. And James first had like seven children. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he had like literally seven children. I mean, maybe even more with his many wives. Like, no, he had one <laughs> wife, sorry. But he, so he had wife, he had seven children. He obviously fucked her loads. Yeah. But totally, he was also fucking whatever that, you know, looks like to them. He was totally fucking his mate. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and probably maybe Anne was also boning one of her ladies in waiting. Like, yeah. But the the idea of, of, of defining that and saying, I'm not going to ever have sex with a woman with my wife and I'm not going to marry a woman. I'm going to 
spend my life with this person that I love is would be kind of alien or it would be just sure. bizarre. Um, that's the thing that annoys me is when people say, oh, he was gay, he was gay. Or uh, the other thing that people talk about is Patroclus and Achilles in the, um, mm-hmm. uh, in the Iliad. Um, that And that does t- tend to get, I suppose, straightwashed by <laughs> modern people who now have this reaction against homosexuality whereby they want to take it out. They... they they don't like it, they hate it, they don't want it, so they try to take it out of these relationships, these relationships which are clearly homoerotic. And mm. no, you can't deny that they're homoerotic and that there is this enormous homoeroticism between them, but that, that isn't a gay relationship in the way that we would define it now. Yeah. And both of them are still banging ladies. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I find, but again, that's something which is completely modern. And it's really interesting that now we have this fight here. We know, I live in Northern Ireland, so right between mm-hmm. Ireland, which had a referendum, and England and Scotland and Wales, where we can have proper marriages. But here in Northern Ireland, we're ruled by the DUP, who are wild homophobes, <laughs> and who then use the Bible to, to defend that, which is, yeah. is very difficult. But, but they have a completely different conception of what marriage is. And they are irreconcilable, essentially. Like, those of us who fight for equal marriage see marriage as something which is an expression of love. The reason that I would want to get married is that I see it as something which marks this relationship out as being more special than the mm-hmm. other long-term relationships that I've had. And that this person is my husband for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Whereas... Other ones were boyfriends and they were, you know, and that this is, it marks it as something more special. And And it has other, there are so many other implications that go along with that kind of, I guess, socially. Yeah. um, In that I know um, a a friend of ours had some problems when her her boyfriend, who she lived with and was common-law married to, was admitted to hospital. She had problems being taken seriously by the doctors because she could only introduce herself as his girlfriend Yeah, and they would have taken her more seriously if she'd been able to introduce herself as his wife. And it seems to me that it's just a profound cruelty to deny someone that option just because of their sexuality, which is obviously not up to them. It's not a choice. It's, yeah, absolutely. you you should be able to give your relationship the maximum weight it deserves regardless of its form and this seems to be even more the case in places in america particularly where the lack of being able to be married cut you out from quite a lot of stuff like there was there are significant tax benefits to being married and there are Mm -hmm. uh, you can be forbidden from entering people's deathbeds and their hospital yeah. rooms because you're not married to them even if you've been together for 50 years and if in the army having the spousal benefits of being in the army are extremely good <laughs> but <laughs> if you are married to if you're a man married to, man in a relationship with a man and you can't marry then you can never access those benefits that other people have and that is to do with the idealization of, of marriage as a relationship which is also it's kind of christian <laughs> but, yeah. but it is you know it's a hangover from the idea that it is a divine thing and that it is the most proper and most significant thing and you without marriage a relationship almost isn't real the idea of having a lavish day as something that everybody can have 
Yeah. Is a product of capitalism, which is the other thing that I've and not the, talked and that about. Everything, and that everyone should have. Yeah. Because the other thing that is significant in the evolution of us all having an authentic self is capitalism and the idea of mm. a market economy and the idea of having a job where people didn't go out to work in the ancient world and go to their job that somebody else owned. Much as plebs, yeah. the greatest show of all time, will lead you to believe that they did <laughs> like you were connected to your family you were connected to the community you like if you owned a, a, a little tavern then you know your family worked in the little tavern and that people didn't come and work as waitresses and then go home mm-hmm. there's that's the industrial revolution and the idea of big factories and taking people away from homesteads and things that introduced that idea and then that introduced the idea of i'm working for my money rather than we are working for our livelihood Right. Which then introduces individualism, which then introduces and then like spend, spend, spend. And, <laughs> and then you get capitalism and capitalism breaks everything. But yeah, it's really impossible to see the idea, our idea of marriage now without having the wedding be part of it. And also without having the impact of the capitalist world that we live in. But it's also difficult. Like, I, I guess a lot of this is probably a modern sensibilities projected backwards, but because we, we've been writing about love and being joined forever with the person you love for literally thousands of years. Yeah. And it's interesting that we've made art out of that forever when that wasn't how we were living. Yes. It's true. Like, yeah. The unrequited love. The idea that someone would love someone so much that he would journey to the underworld to bring her back and that that is this ideal, beautiful, romantic love and that was written, you know, a couple of thousand years ago and yet it was written in a society where people didn't have relationships like that. Well, I'll tell you why, because men could. And you'll note that none of those end up with them getting married at the end. Like, they don't end up like Disney princesses. That doesn't end up with, like, them having a big wedding and everybody living happily ever after. (laughs) They just fuck. (laughs) And the woman has no say in that situation. She gets taken off to the underworld and then Mm -hmm. some bloke comes and rescues her and she's like, all right, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) And it's the same, like, the first thing that I thought of was I was trying to think of like love in in ancient context was Jacob and Rachel in the Bible where he's just I don't know pootling around and he comes across her and falls in love with her at first sight and then goes to her dad and says he wants to marry her and her dad makes him work for seven years in the field and then (laughs) says he can marry her and then pulls and then plays a dirty trick pulls a dirty trick and disguises her <laughs> sister as her and then he Jacob accidentally marries her sister and then 20 minutes later like three seconds into the relationship realizes that he's married the wrong girl goes back and then works for another seven years in order to be able to marry Rachel but at no point does Rachel go I love you Jacob she's just sort of <laughs> like this guy turns up and they won't fuck off yeah. <laughs> and so love is something that men can do. Men write poetry about women. Apart from Sappho, we've not got that much female poetry about anybody. No. But this is why we end up as well with, they just do feel like protest books. You end up with um, Jane Austen writing about how a woman's only power is her power of refusal. Yeah. And even then, that's mitigated by her circumstances and um, not everyone actually gets to wield it, which is... Yeah, absolutely. And there's so much pressure to say yes in every time. Mm -hmm. There's actually a really great poem from the 
fifth century, sixth century, and it's one of the very few written by a woman woman that we have. And it's a woman who writes a poem about a person who she sees as beneath her has proposed marriage to her. Uh, and she's so offended that somebody that of his would station dare. would dare that she writes this whole poem, which has miraculously survived, where she basically describes herself as being a beautiful, delicate thing, and the marriage to him would be suffocating and appalling. So it's a, a series of metaphors like marrying you would be like a beautiful pearl wrapped in lead. It would be like a, a beautiful flower choked by ivy. It's a... <laughs> A dove being destroyed by a pigeon. Like, it's all of this. <laughs> that she's, I'm a beautiful, delicate thing. And, like, obviously she was able to go tell him to take his unwanted love back to where it came from. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's a really interesting insight. She later married a guy who was another poet um, and they became kind of terribly delightful socialites within their community, writing poetry and laughing a lot. The bright young things of their time. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it, the, that she has this power and this sense of herself as being something that can be like how fucking dare you come to me and offer me marriage with you and like from all of it that is the thing that is lost from history that our generation is potentially one of the few generations where it won't be lost is those moments of of the individual experience of of marriage and of being proposed to because all we have is laws and people writing about kings and queens and emperors and empresses and Mm -hmm. aristocrats people writing about them for the most part, rather than them writing about themselves and saying how they felt when they married or how they felt about their wives and things. And it is, it's a shame. (laughs) Future historians, if if Tumblr survives, are going to have a great time with all of our blogs and... Yeah, they're going to have just a ludicrous amount of material, most of which is shitposting. Yeah, I feel bad about them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kind of glad I'm not a future historian because I wouldn't want (laughs) to... Like, oh my god, how am I supposed to tell if this is ironic or not? I like the idea that Future Historians is going to be a whole part, huge part of the job. We'll be trying to, like, restore glitchy digital files and bring back things. That, like, it's going to be very bad yeah. for computers. They're all going to get very bad backs. They are. <laughs> I feel bad for Future Historians who are going to be spending all of their time looking at it. This person has written, just please retweet. And we can't tell. <laughs> and there will be, like, entire books written about like what the is this the irony and the there will be entire theoretical (laughs) systems like built around what was meant when they said please retweet Uh, (laughs) in the context when we look at uh, it's gonna be great I feel bad for every single one of them (laughs) because one culture has always been considerably more multifarious and confusing than it's ever looked when written down yeah. But now that the current culture is one, so written down and two, so multifarious with everyone's individual experience being elevated, that it's going to be a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll all be dead. It's fine. Good luck to you, everyone. It's OK. The inevitable water wars will kill us all and then there'll be nothing left. <laughs> Yeah, it's not like what the sea life that survived the painting <laughs> apocalypse are going to trawl through our Twitter feeds. It's just going to be sharks and cockroaches. <laughs> they don't care what we feel on twitter (laughs) anyway i suppose the answer is yes tim yeah they invented marriage for us scott and charlene the neighbors the best of neighbors 
Actually, another good fact is to take us right back to the beginning again, that wedding was done really hastily as a plot point. It was never supposed to be like a big thing. Them moving in. Really? Yeah, them moving in together was the big thing. But so many people freaked out about them being an unwed couple living together. Oh, the 80s. <laughs> yeah, that they hastily put together the wedding so that everybody would shut up, basically. Yeah. Which, I mean, it's not that long ago. Like 87, how old was no, I? No, it's really not. Yeah, it, you know, both of us were born and we're not that old. No. And the idea of an yeah. unwed couple being a, a cultural nightmare. Well, actually, speaking of that, I remember there being this episode of Home Improvement where one of the grandparents was coming to visit and... Uh, the parents had this freak out about the possibility, and this was like when there were adults with three children, <laughs> of the possibility of um, whoever's parents it were finding out that they had lived together before they got married. <laughs> like their, parent, their parents hadn't known that, that they'd done that. And it was this genuine worry that they were going to have to, that they were going to find out somehow. And that is bonkers to me as well. And that, that was relatable content of the 80s. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that would have been, that would have been the 90s. Yeah. That was past the 80s. Yeah. It's really, it's interesting how quickly standards and expectations have changed around that. It has. It's spectacular. Yeah. I mean, even when yeah. talking about equal marriage, the first ever protest that I went on when I was 15 years old, so it's only 20 years ago, was um, an anti-Section 28, which forbade people from mentioning the idea of homosexuality in schools. It banned the promotion of homosexuality, which meant that you couldn't even mention the idea of gay people in a school or any kind of official like NHS context or anything. Yeah, and, and that was one of the first things they were processed about. And the idea that it's gone now within 20 years from that to... Because we have civil unions, not just for the right to have a legal relationship, but to ha- the right mm-hmm. to have a wedding and to be able to yeah. call a woman my wife if I want to um, is amazing. Yeah. We're not doing so badly, yeah. really, as society. I mean, it's a shithole, yeah, obviously. Well- but as I said previously, it's always been a shithole. <laughs> It's a shithole, but there are bright spots. It's mostly because people are like 75% shit. Yeah, or they're very loud about well, it. Well, I've told you my, my London underground theory of humanity. Have you? Well, if I haven't, I'm going to tell you now. My London underground theory of humanity is that humans must be fundamentally good because if there weren't, then there would be murders every day on the London underground. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. The London underground is stressful. It's hot. It's... So you're so close to so many other people and so many of them are doing horrible things. Mm -hmm. You're just stuck there, pressed up against somebody else's arm or back. Someone else has got the hand on your hand because they're both having to hold onto the same pole. And then you've got to try to fight your way in and fight your way out. And then every single time that you try to get on the tube and the tube is there, somebody will step directly in front of you. So you just miss it by half a second. Mm-hmm. It is deeply frustrating and unpleasant experience, and yet nobody has ever been just stabbed in the fucking face. Yeah. Nobody has ever gone down there on a stabbing spree. And it is a miracle. It's because, in the end, humans are fundamentally good. Yeah. And also, like, everything feels particularly shit right now, but it is, you know, if you look back, it's it's demonstrably a fact that we progress, we get better and we get more accepting of different cultures and different experiences and are you doing the wig theory of history at me janina i'm doing i'm just trying to be a optimistic (laughs) it's all you know we've got a you you swing back and you swing forward again it's true slowly push the needle um um i am not a wig historian a wig history is the idea that history is always 
progressing towards betterment and that there there is some kind of everything is always getting better basically in ways yes in ways no um, it's just it's yeah, always I mean, I been think, a bit I think <laughs> in in general most people have much more rights than they did a hundred years ago and that's great that's true but then a yeah. hundred years ago how much were people thinking about rights I mean, they were a bit, but because people were writing things like the <laughs> fundamental rights of man. But that is a, an individual. Mm-hmm. The idea that people have rights is a fundamentally individualist perspective. Yeah, that's that's true. And it's, it's the idea of having, if you go back and tell a medieval person that they have a human right, then they'd be like, mm, I have a farm, <laughs> <laughs> and I have, <laughs> and they would probably not really understand what you're talking about. So it's better within yeah. our cultural a cultural understanding of what better is. Yes. There you go. <laughs> which is all which is all we have. That's all that matters really. <laughs> and we all need some way to survive the clusterfuck that is today's political landscape. So why not believe it? Why not? All right, I'll let you have your teleology. <laughs> so you know. <laughs> all right, Janina. Do you think we have answered Tim's question? I think we have. I think we should make the point just that we're very aware that this has been a predominantly Western oh, yeah. look at Western marriage. Absolutely, um, because we are both Western people and yeah. I don't know that we have any we, right to be talking about. Yeah, we don't want to make assumptions about cultures that we don't have any expertise or experience yeah. of. That uh, seems like a shitty thing to do. It does, but if there's stuff about non-Western marriage, um, then that would be great. Um, I will put the books that I read for this in the show notes, or Oliver will, because some of them are quite interesting. They all are terribly broad, but what can you do when you're doing 2,000 years' worth of history in 200 pages? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So what's our next question going to be? Our next question is from another man with a really good beard. His name is Bob, (laughs) and he is in my science fiction book group and his question was genuinely just what's the deal with antipopes i'm really excited about this because i'd never heard of them i love antipopes so (laughs) i can't (laughs) wait i got so excited when he asked that question i almost felt like i'd put him up to it but i genuinely didn't (laughs) so next week and not next week two weeks we're going to be talking about what's the deal with antipopes but in the meantime you can follow janina at j9 and it and you can follow Emma at Nuclear Teeth. And you can follow Oliver, who is our producer and editor at, at Kiwa, which is K-E-E-W-A. And you can follow us at Sexy History Pod. And if you have a history question that you'd like us to answer, tweet it at us. Yeah, because we like answering questions. Yeah. Yeah. It's what we're here for. So bye, Janina. Bye, Emma. Bye, Emma.